You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anne Aurelia Lopez received a Ph.D. from the University of California in Santa Cruz. She's currently a research associate at the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is in the process of establishing a nonprofit organization designed to improve the lives of California farm workers and their families in Mexico. Her new book is The Farm Worker's Journey. Thank you for joining me, Anne. I'm pleased to be here. This is a really interesting book, and I'd like you to tell me how it began for you? What drew you to this subject and made you decide to start writing this book? Well, I've been teaching at San Jose City College for many years, and the Mercury News at that time was running some editorials about farm workers, and uh, they referred to farm workers as if they were some sort of implements of the farming system, like, you know, part of the shovels or the tractors or whatever, and I just was amazed at the dehumanization, and it really bothered me. I don't know why it struck a chord, but it really did. And I started talking about it, and then when the opportunity to do a Ph.D. came up for me at UC Santa Cruz, I decided to move forward and see what I could do with, uh, for farm workers. It surprises me, really, that nobody has take, undertaken the kind of study that you've undertaken or written the kind of book you've written. It, it's, it's almost shocking, given how long we've had you know, the farm workers as an issue here in California. Well, it is, and I think that they are a voiceless and pretty much hidden group of people that uh, the only time people see them is when they're on major highways and they're, they happen to be out in the fields. But uh, few people from the outside actually go into the community and sit down and talk to them about what their lives are like. And I think that they are just a hidden, disenfranchised population. And uh, I think it takes uh, certain types of people to be able to reach them because they are somewhat suspicious of people from the outside because there are people that betray them all the time. Could you tell me how you managed to get inside this this kind of hidden society? Well, um, what I did is I started going around to uh, classrooms, elementary school classrooms in farm worker regions, and showing uh, slides of uh, um, traditional Mexican farming practices. And then the teacher would send a, send a, a note home to the parents and ask if they'd like to be part of my study. And at first, it was kind of hard. People were tentative. But then as people got to know me, and especially when I paid them for their interviews, it really uh, acknowledged their knowledge and also gave me the information I needed. And before long, more and more people wanted to be part of my study. And I have people calling now all the time. Well, that's fascinating. And let's talk a little bit about some of the historical uh, Mexican farming methods, because you cover this in your book. And, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting. And it's fascinating and much more complex than I ever suspected. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, the, the Mexican traditional farmers were really geniuses in the way they were able to work with nature and uh, cause, you know, create these huge yields of corn 
um, out of just handful, handfuls of seed in the countryside. And um, their corn, bean, and squash intercrop has been really the foundation of the culture for thousands of years, where the corn has been hand-selected, and over time, of course, the genetic fit then to the microclimate or microenvironment that they live in becomes almost perfect, and they get really good yields of very healthy uh, healthy corn and also uh, a side crop of beans and um, squash, and that's maintained them for thousands of years. And the three crops themselves have symbiotic mutualisms so that pests were never really a problem without going into the detail. It's in my book, but there's been many scientific studies done that show that the architecture, the kind of mutualism, symbiosis, and so on between these three plants really scientifically accounts for the fact that uh, when you grow these three crops together, your yield, your corn yield is actually half again as much as if you grow just a monoculture of corn. Well, now this is fascinating, and this is kind of a golden goal for us. It's a sustainable economy. Totally. Totally a sustainable economy, right. And sustainable in the sen- ecologically, too, so that these large fa- farming families could exist in the natural environment, and after they harvest their crops, the natural, the native vegetation reclaims the land, and actually the land is improved nutri- in terms of nutrients after the farming practice, more so than before. And so it's really kind of the reverse of the industrial processes that we have here. And those industrial processes are starting to make really seriously negative inroads in, in Mexico as well as here. I'd like you to tell me about some of the interviews that you did, the maybe the first interviews that you did that really struck you and and made you as passionate as you clearly are about this subject? Yes. Well, uh, I recall very clearly my first interview down on West Beach Street in uh, Watsonville. And uh, I think the thing that struck me the most was finding 26 people living in an area of less than 1,000 square feet with one bathroom. And uh, I wanted to turn on the lights, and they asked me to move closer to the uh, window because that there was more light there. And I realized that this is one of the ways that farm workers manage to survive and, and manage to house themselves is just by two, three, even four families living in the same small unit and everybody paying part of the rent because their wages are so low, they're so impoverished that this is the best they can do. One thing that, that interests me is when you're talking about this. So we have whole families up here, but we also have split families. And you have this really interesting term, bi- binational. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the binational family lifestyle, which can't be good for either the nations or the families. No, it's not. And I, I think that a lot of this has occurred as a result of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which really forced farmers off their land in Mexico since we're now sending so much corn into Mexico and they can't compete with the way we produce corn here, especially since it's subsidized with, uh, with uh, so much tax money. The farmers here get huge subsidies to grow corn. 
And so uh, the farmers were really left with only half of the income they used to get from the government from the sale of their part of their harvest. And so unable to feed their families, and uh, they, ha they were really forced off their land. They're, the ones that come here are economic refugees of NAFTA, and that's never discussed in the media, but that's the truth. And if you talk to farm workers here, the vast majority want to go back to their communities, to their families, and to their style of life, their land. That's, being a campesino is not a job. It is a lifestyle in which one lives their life in a community with a family that's very close, lots of cooperation, and you live with the seasons of, of nature. So to be thrown into a factory or whatever is just not even something people think about. Let's talk a little bit about NAFTA. There's two letters in there, free trade. But as we've been learning of late, free trade is not really free. No, free, the free refers to free of tariffs. It's not free. It comes with a huge cost to the impoverished. And in the first five years of NAFTA, um, the number of people in the Mexican countryside that are living impoverished lives increased by four million. This is after the Mexican government and our government uh, applauded NAFTA as a solution to undocumented immigration and how the diets in Mexico were going to improve for everybody and on and on. And the opposite, it may have happened for the entrepreneurs, but for the poor in, Mexico, in rural Mexico, it has been an absolute devastation. It is tearing apart their culture, and uh, families are abandoned. There, are, there is a roving mass continuously of depressed, abandoned women everywhere in the countryside that are visibly depressed. Uh, there's a whole generation of children being raised without fathers. Uh, it's very, very sad uh, what's going on there. And uh, since every year since NAFTA went into effect, 158,000 children age birth to age five die before they reach age five from nutritional uh, diseases. This is a, a fairly startling and alarming statistic. One thing I, I want to ratchet back a little bit on something you said, the farmers here receiving tariffs or receiving right. subsidies. Right. Um, these are not family farmers, no. are they? No, this is huge agribusiness. This is major, huge agribusiness growing corn, most of it genetically modified corn. And um, we as taxpayers pay uh, $11 billion to these corn farmers. Now, if they had to sell their corn on the open market like the farmers in Mexico do, they would lose money. But the reason they stay in the business is because the government uses our tax dollars to subsidize them. And then uh, Archer Daniels Midland, the largest corn exporter in the world, sends this corn, 20,000 tons a year of which is genetically modified, into Mexico, and it is derailing all of these strains of corn genetically. Uh, the genetic erosion is un unparalleled, and almost every single state in Mexico now has transgenic corn contamination. Now, now this is pretty interesting because I was talking with Andrew Cambrell about this earlier this month, and he's very concerned about this, as are many people. Um, what's happening here is, is that um, you talked about the, the kind of the pol a polyculture 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, could you tell explain what polyculture is and how genetically modified corn is eroding that? Yes, um, a polyculture is just where you grow more than one crop in the same area, so or an intercrop. So we have corn, beans, and squash, and they all are symbiotic together. So you get more yield, really, especially of the corn, than if you grew the corn alone. Um, the, the corn that we're sending to Mexico, which is GMO corn, corn pollen flies uh, as far as 60 feet from the plant. And in this country, if you grow GMO corn, legally you're supposed to have borders around your field so that um, if the corn pollen flies, then it won't land on somebody else's corn that might not want GMO corn and their pollen in their field. But um, in, in the rural countryside in Mexico, there are no borders around fields. The, the one farmer's field is separated from another by a row of stones or even a wire fence. So if you've got somebody um, growing the traditional corn in Mexico and right next door is somebody growing genetically modified corn that they've brought down from their employer in the United States or whatever, then that corn pollen from the genetically modified corn is going to blow over and contaminate the other uh, person's corn. Now, the reason to me that this is so alarming is because Monsanto has come up with Terminator technology. What this means is that they have genetically modified the corn so that once it's harvested and planted, it will not regrow. And so, in other words, um, the, the embryo is made sterile in the corn seed. So now if you have GMO corn pollen blowing, that's terminator, blowing into the next field, then that farmer, that subsistence farmer whose life depends on this corn, he may plant his corn that he saves for the next year and nothing comes up. Is this terminator corn actually out there right now? There, this, is, this is happening? It's, it's available. Australia and the United States are very anxious to get it out on the market, but the Convention on Biosafety has put a stop on it temporarily. But this is in the offing. I mean, it's very scary. This is a, a recipe for mass starvation and famine. Totally. It, it would affect the livelihoods of 1.4 billion people in the world, all subsistence farmers. You're right. Let's talk about the farm workers who come here. Now, there's, from what you've said, we've got whole families who come here, but they leave parts of their family behind in, in Mexico. And then we have the, the men who come here. Could you talk about the, how those two groups get together when they're here and how, a lot, how they get along when they're here? Do the single men who come over here mingle with the families? Are, are they like in that group of 23 people? Mm-hmm. Or did you have a mixture of families and, and just yes. men? Yeah, you do. And then a lot of the men uh, rent together. Like um, I've heard they call them switchboard houses where there will be, say, a a, uh, studio apartment that costs $1,000 in Santa Cruz and seven men will rent it together. That's not uncommon. And generally speaking, it's interesting because one of the great crises of this whole situation is the transfer of HIV, AIDS from California to the Mexican countryside that virtually had no AIDS prior to NAFTA. And men, uh, migrant workers, farm workers, are 10 times more likely 
to, to contract HIV than are, is the, the regular population. And oftentimes on the days when um, the men are paid, the prostitutes follow them into the bars and they become infected. And then they return to Mexico where there's a tremendous stigma against having AIDS and they infect their wives or their uh, girlfriends or their babies. And, uh, you know, Mexico, so the, the disease then becomes born in a third world country, which does not have the infrastructure or the financial uh, resources to deal with an epidemic in the, in the same way that we do. How did you get this kind of stories out of these people? This must have been really fascinating and difficult for you emotionally as it well. It was very difficult emotionally. I, I have a background in science, and I had no idea the emotional roller coaster I would be on during the, this 10-year study. It was just, uh, I, I went through all the emotions, I think, that the people went through. And I think that gave them hope, though, because I think they feel so uh, disenfranchised that for someone who's not in their predic predicament to come in and actually show an interest and compassion for their uh, situation was seemed to be a relief. And I think that's why I have farm worker friends still today that I see regularly. On the other side of the equation, how are you getting along with the California ag corporate agro-economy? Well, uh, fortunately, I don't, actually, my work does not uh, <laughs> go into that area, but I'm sure it would not be a pleasant experience. And on the one hand, you know, this, this economy has been in this shape since California statehood. So these farms and this way of hiring huge labor forces has been in place since, what, 1848. So it's hard to blame people who are just have had this general, generationally passed on to them for something, you know, for inheriting this in a way that they didn't, they weren't actually the originators of it. On the other hand, I do think that the circumstances of farm workers in, in this area are so dismal that, you know, the citizens have to stand up and say, you know, having people in the fields for $5 an hour in the blazing sun and working 13 hours a day is just not something that we approve of. Uh, they're, you know, they're basically exempt from all labor laws. And so they, they work horrible, horrible situations, uh, herniated discs, people that have had, one of my, the farm workers had uh, thyroid cancer. She's a young woman, and she said several other people in her crew also had cancer. Who knows what they were using? And the company doctors uh, irradiated, the, took out the tumor and the thyroid, irradiated it, and when she asked for time off to heal, they told her she was cured and to go back and continue working in that situation. See, this kind of thing is unethical and I think violates people's human rights, really. What do you think can be done to change the situation? 
Well, I don't think the farm workers themselves can do anything because they are caught in a binational framework of institutions and laws that begins in Mexico and goes clear into the United States. And every law and institution is designed to keep them in place. So that network is so rigid that I think it takes concerned citizens like myself and yourself who can reach in and, and assist them in some way. And that's why I started my organization, the Center for Work Farm Worker Families. And if any of your listeners are interested in what's being done locally, they can go to farmworkerfamily.org and find out about our product, our, our, our rather our projects. But ultimately, the simplest proactive way of dealing with the immigration issue is, number one, recognize that NAFTA and immigration go together. Undocumented immigration is a direct result of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which you never see discussed in the media. One. Two, if we want to be proactive about dealing with it, then we should put our money into organizations that can work to create local rural economies in three states from which most of these immigrants come, Jalisco, Michoacan, and Oaxaca. There are tried and true ways of ending poverty so people can stay home. The Heifer Project International has done an outstanding job of this. Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank, that model in India, he won the Nobel Prize because his system is so effective. Uh, the Jane Goodall Foundation in Africa, all of these things can be, even the Hunger Project International has come up with a way that local villages in a region can get out of hunger, uh, out of poverty and hunger, and into self-sustainability in five years. Now, this is a proactive way of dealing with the problem. People can stay home where they want to be. Most do not want to be here, and you can't blame them with all the backlash and so on. And it would solve the, quote, immigration problem. It would give people employment so they can stay home. And it would make other people who don't like seeing hordes of immigrants coming to the California and the rest of the nation happy. And, this, and it would cost a fraction of all these walls and paramilitarization and laws about felonies. And these people are not felons. They're economic refugees of the trade policies that we have created in this country. And to blame them and focus all of this uh, vilification on them, I think is one of the cruelest things. It's very un-American. Now, What's going to happen to California's agribusiness corporations if, if we end illegal immigration? Well, I, I personally favor a contracted labor force in the state uh, with a contract, living wage, and benefits, just like anybody in a manufacturing section might, sector might uh, desire. And I think that, uh, you know, we, we need a contracted labor force instead of relying on displacing people from their own country to come here and harvest our crops. In what is apparently virtual slavery. Exactly. It is legalized slavery, in my opinion. It's cruel. It's cruel and humane. And we must stop this. This is definitely, you know, 
Santa Cruz County is supposed to be a liberal progressive county. Well, I can take you 10 miles down the road to the migrant camp and I will show you some devastating situations. Come to, I'll translate. Come down and see for yourself. It's tragic. And we cannot remain complacent while this is going on in our backyard and have any sense of human dignity. Could you talk a little bit about the slideshow you're going to be giving here tonight at Capitola Book Cafe? Yes, um, the slideshow I'm going to show is, a, is really a summary, a thumbnail sketch summary of the book. And it, uh, it will start out with the con contextual reality that what I've, what I've discovered in the binational system between Mexico and California is going on all over the world. There are 200 million people now displaced from their countries of citizenship by the globalized economy. This is the neoliberal economy, which is uh, liberal meaning liberal trade, you know, free trade. So, uh, you know, this isn't just Mexico and California or the United States. This is the world. And so I've just happened to study one strand, and what I found was terrible. And we need to do something about this. So I'm going I'm to start out with this context and then move into specifically Mexico and look at their uh, slides of their, them on their farms and their traditional agricultural system, what the harvests look like. And then we'll go into uh, what NAFTA has done and um, what the choices, which are very few, that they have, and they're, the forced migration into this country, and then what, what happens to them when they become farm workers, and how their health deteriorates, and how their mental health deteriorates terribly, and then what happens when they go home to see all of the corn, bean, and squash intercrops being replaced by export crops, so the farmland is being degraded and the loneliness and then at the same time what we see is corporations from the United States making lots of money with agrochemicals, with GMO and hybrid seed sales, with Coca-Cola, with Pepsi-Cola, with Marlboro. As one municipal president said to me, the United States sends us only the worst of everything. And that is our legacy in the West Central Mexico countryside, I'm sorry to say. We've been speaking with Anne Aurelia Lopez. Her new book is The Farmworker's Journey. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.